You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Keith Whittington. Keith teaches politics, constitutional law and history at Princeton University. And he is on the board of directors of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE. Anybody who would like to know uh, about FIRE in a lot more detail, regular listeners will will note that I've... um, that I recently interviewed Greg Lukianov, and I'll provide a link to that episode in the show notes too. I'm interviewing, um, oh, Keith is also the author of two books, uh, of several books, including Repugnant Laws, Judicial Review of Acts of Congress from the Founding to the Present, and Speak Freely, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech. And I am interviewing him today because he is the chair of the academic committee of the new Academic Freedom Alliance, which is an organization dedicated to protecting the freedom of expression rights of um, American academics, university professors, or lecturers for any of you who are listening from the UK. Um, Welcome, Keith. Uh, Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. First of all, could you tell me um, why, what the first seed was, wh- why you decided to found this organization, and how, it, how your work differs from the kind of work done by organizations like FIRE and Heterodox Academy? Sure. Um, so some colleagues and I at Princeton have been uh, talking for a few years now, really, about um, are uh, mutual concerns about the state of free speech uh, on university campuses, in particular, um, the degree of appreciation that our colleagues and our students had um, for free speech principles and their understandings of of those principles and how they might apply uh, in various circumstances. And we've been talking about what things that we could be doing uh, to help try to improve the situation. It was partially those conversations that led me to um, write the Speak Freely book um, uh, in part because I just didn't think there was a good book out there I could point students to um, that was accessible, but also explained um, uh, what the principles of free speech were and why they might matter, in particular on a university uh, campus. There are lots of books about sort of horror stories about how things had gone wrong on college campuses, but I think less that sort of laid out the, the principles and, and why they mattered. Um, and so uh, as those conversations continued, we... Um, uh, we're bouncing around some ideas about uh, what more we could do to help uh, protect faculty in particular um, who found themselves in the midst of free speech controversies. And and then uh, some opportunity uh, came about to uh, put some funding together with some ideas. Um, and so uh, the Academic Freedom Alliance was really born out of those uh, conversations. Um, and the core commitment is to, um, uh, one, provide um moral support for faculty who find themselves in the midst of uh, these free speech controversies. I think when when um, 
uh, somebody finds themselves in hot water, or a controversy starts going public, students start complaining or outside interests start complaining about something somebody has said, um, faculty often feel extraordinarily isolated um, in the midst of those uh, controversies. They don't have a very good sense about what to do. They don't really know what their own rights are um, in those circumstances. And so we thought it would be useful um, to have an organization of other faculty um, who could speak out on their behalf, um, uh, remind university administrators that somebody's looking over their shoulder um, and somebody's putting some pressure on them to actually respect academic freedom principles. Um, and then the second goal is to uh, actually provide legal assistance um, to faculty in those situations so that they can get uh, some legal advice on on how to navigate their situation, hopefully um, uh, quickly bring an end to um, whatever controversy or threat and investigations uh, might be in the offing, but if necessary, to vindicate their rights um, in courts um, uh, down the road. Um, we are certainly similar, I think, in our overall goals as an organization like FIRE. I have a great deal of respect for what they um, do. Um, uh, but I think at the moment they're being overwhelmed by the volume of cases. There's just uh, extraordinary challenges um, to free speech on college campuses in the United States uh, these days, and, and not only in the United States. Um, and so FIRE has its hands full um, with those kinds of disputes. FIRE has a somewhat broader mission. They're concerned with um, student uh, speech rights as well as faculty speech rights. Um, they're also um, concerned with due process um, issues um, that, that we're trying to stay away from. Um, and so our mission is somewhat more narrow than theirs. Um, it's also true that, of course, they're not a faculty-led organization. Uh, we are. Um, uh, I think that brings a somewhat different perspective to bear on the, some of these issues than um, an organization primarily uh, uh, driven by, by lawyers. Um, and among those differences is a somewhat greater emphasis on uh, contractual principles of academic freedom that a lot of American universities uh, embraced over the course of the 20th century. Um, those are a little distinct from the kind of constitutional and statutory rights um, that many faculty have. And FIRE tends to focus on those um, constitutional protections that faculty at public universities have in particular. Um, and I think that probably doesn't give enough coverage um, to the kinds of contractual rights that faculty, um, particularly at private universities, um, also have that help protect um, their, their free speech. And so we hope to be focused on, for, uh, on those issues that's relevant to faculty in both of those uh, kinds of situations. Yeah, I, it does seem to me also that because it's a um, because it's a faculty-led um, uh, initiative, it uh, it provides more of a sense of community and moral support to academics who are involved in these kinds of contra- controversies. And one of the uh, one of the problems is not just infringement of rights, but also the climate and um, creating a creating better free speech norms in academe. That's particularly important to me because, of course, here in the UK, we also don't have the First Amendment. Sure. Um, so we don't really have legal and statutory um, protections of that kind. I think that's absolutely right. In the long run, the norms are going to be crucial. Um, and uh, certainly one of my concerns is that they are – uh, being pretty steadily eroded um, at the moment. Um, that has consequences, I think, in terms of immediate university practices and how faculty uh, relate to one another. 
Um, I, I do worry that in the long term that will have consequences for the shape of American law um, as well. Um, part mm. of my concern about these um, free speech issues is not only the immediate controversies, but what the long term uh, consequences of a erosion of support for free speech principles is likely to be in the United States. Um, and uh, some of my work that's not uh, that's focused on judicial politics and how the American constitutional system has developed over time. One thing I emphasize there is the extent to which the actual substantive content of constitutional laws is being understood and enforced by courts in the long run reflects um, uh, public opinion and uh, social values more more generally. And so um, if you lose support for these principles um, in broader society, you will eventually lose them uh, in the courts um, as as well. And there's also just lots of context in um, academic life uh, where um, even if you have fairly robust protections uh, for uh, people's rights in their employment, um, that nonetheless will not protect them from lots of things that are professionally consequential, um, uh, but do reflect a more intolerant environment. Um, so, for example, um, uh, one uh, one episode that uh, was brought to my attention soon after we publicly launched um, uh, this, this uh, initiative um, was a, f- a faculty member who um, was effectively being blacklisted from um, publishing in professional journals um, because he had once published in another journal that that uh, many faculty in his discipline objected to. Um, so he had not he was not being accused of having said anything himself that was particularly controversial. He had just published in the wrong place uh, next to the wrong people uh, from their perspective. And as a consequence, um, he's being shut out of his ability to engage um, in his professional work as a scholar um, as a consequence of these really just pressures uh, from the from his professional community. Um, ultimately, he, there are no rights he can point to that um, uh, can overcome that. That's really just a question of professional norms. Um, and I, I think in the long run, not only do we need to enforce the rights people have, um, which fortunately they do have uh, fairly robust rights uh, in the American context, um, but critically, we need to build support for these principles and the kinds of, of norms and practices um, that help support these principles. Um, and that, that will be essential, I think, to maintaining um, a robust intellectual environment in academic life so that people can uh, get back to what they're supposed to be doing, uh, which is uh, seriously grappling with important ideas. I mean, there there are so many instances in which you could um, damage a person's academic standing, their career, their ability to do their work effectively, but which still all fall within the law. I mean, especially if the person is untenured, you can simply refuse them tenure. You can fail their third year review. You can refuse to publish their articles. You can withdraw their articles, as some journals have done. You cannot invite them to conferences. You can do many other things that are going to damage their academic career and potentially make it very difficult for them to find work or continue in work. And all of those things are legal because they all fall under um, choices that universities would normally make. So when you go through the tenure review process, you might well be denied tenure for many legitimate reasons. But the problem is which reasons are considered legitimate and what kinds of pressures are universities also responding to? Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's um, uh, and 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 that list really does, I think, outline the the wide range of uh, 
ways in which uh, faculty can affect the professional careers of, of other colleagues. Um, and notably, a lot of those decisions are being made by faculty. It's, it's, it's other professors who are making the decision as to whether or not uh, to invite you to a conference, whether or not to extend you a job offer, or whether or not to uh, publish your work. Um, and uh, that makes it uh, particularly difficult to um, get a handle on and, and um, alter course um, if uh, the broad community is very single-minded about these things and um, wants to uh, shut somebody out. Um, on the margins, there are some things that can be done, I think, that um, can help uh, protect the uh, environment for the genuine exchange of ideas in some of these circumstances. So you mentioned, for example, contingent faculty who are being hired on a course-by-course course or semester-by-semester basis. Um, at most American universities, um, they're entitled to academic freedom. They're not supposed to be sanctioned uh, for the content um, of their ideas if they're working within uh, professional uh, bounds and teaching um, or, or engaging in scholarship in ways that are consistent uh, with professional expectations. And yet, as a practical matter, it's just very easy for university administrators to simply uh, not renew somebody's contract uh, without any explanation um, or with some pretextual explanation about um, why they're letting them go. Uh, we've also seen in the uh, many contexts of these controversies, uh, people being uh, removed from the classroom in the middle of a semester um, uh, as a consequence of these um, kinds of controversies. Um, tenure protections help in that regard. Um, we've, we've seen an extraordinary shift over the last several decades um, to an increasing reliance in American universities on um, adjuncts who are hired um, on a, a, a contingent basis, uh, again, semester by semester, even course by course. Um, and uh, it's much harder um, to punish uh, people with tenure protections for the content of their speech. University officials um, have to offer an explanation as to why they're trying to terminate a faculty member. They have to go through a process uh, to demonstrate that that explanation is both a, a good one um, and it's actually grounded um, in some facts. And so it does uh, hamper the ability of administrators um, to actually punish uh, a tenured faculty in the midst of these speech disputes um, uh, tenure is not sufficient to fully protect um, individuals, nor is it sufficient to fully protect what it is we ought to be doing um, as academics. Um, but I think it does highlight that tenure protections still matter and they're still very useful um, and it would be uh, helpful um, to the overall uh, climate of academic freedom to extend uh, more of these kinds of procedural protections uh, to a wider array of faculty. Mm. At least take away the possibility that they can they can use the the professor's speech as a pretext. Uh, absolutely, although very hard to do, um, and so mm -hmm. we've seen a lot of these cases. For example, where um, uh, and of course there are lots of cases that that are just never known because they're just uh, they never emerge into the larger media, and so they're uh, very localized disputes. Um, so we were sort of seeing the tip of the iceberg. Uh, by seeing the things that wind up being reported. Um, but there's certainly plenty of instances in which you've seen um, contingent faculty who say something controversial over the course of the semester. Somebody winds up complaining to university officials 
Um, and then uh, at the end of the semester, uh, they're simply told, um, sorry, there's no room for you uh, next semester. Uh, we don't have an opportunity to, to give you uh, more classes. Um, these are often people who've been teaching that that uh, place for 10, 15 years. Uh, they often have very good teaching evaluations. There's no reason to think that the university is actually uh, 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 refusing to renew their contract uh, for good faith reasons. It's almost certainly the case they're doing it because the, the speech controversy. Um, and yet it's very hard to prove the university doesn't have to demonstrate um, that the reason they're giving is a good one um, or even give you a reason at all uh, why they're not renewing your contract. And so um, uh, a contingent faculty are just in a very vulnerable uh, uh, situation um, uh, relative to, to these things, even if the university says um, that it's fully committed to the principle of academic freedom. It also worries me a lot that this is creating a climate of self-censorship and my evidence for this is entirely anecdotal, but you know I'm a very milk toast, um, left of slightly leftist centrist um, with extremely um, middle of the road opinions, and um, Ario Magazine is also a very milk toast centrist publication. And this podcast is a milk toast centrist thing. <laughs> um, there's, there's, uh, these are probably opinions which I, if voiced separately, most people would agree with. Um, you know, I'm a very boring political person. I'm very boring in my politics, and nevertheless, I regularly hear from people that they are, um, who have who are supporting the magazine or supporting this podcast that they don't want to be named they don't want me to let anybody know because that might impact them negatively and that just seems extraordinary to me uh, yeah it is it's um uh so, so unfortunately we're now in a situation where uh, even the defense of free speech for academics uh, is controversial among academics. Um, and so uh, when we were in the process of, of recruiting faculty uh, into the organization, uh, we were very committed to bringing in um, uh, people who, uh, one, were uh, fairly senior and distinguished in their own careers, and so were relatively unlikely to, to um uh, be made to suffer um, serious consequences for joining an organization like this um, on the hope that they could help take advantage of uh, their privilege in this context in order to help uh, protect others who are in more vulnerable situations. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that we were recruiting people from across a, a wide uh, swath of, of the university. We wanted people from different disciplines, different kinds of institutions, um, across the ideological spectrum, um, so that this, to emphasize, this is not just a problem for the left or the right. This is a problem for people across the board. Um, and yet, when we talked to people, we, we on the one hand, we found that people um, uh, really across the board were very anxious about the situation in academia these days, very concerned about these issues. Um, but we also uh, encountered quite a few people who said, boy, this is a great idea. I hope you all are really successful, um, but I don't feel like I can safely join this. Um, effort and and so even even defending free speech can be um, uh, too controversial for some very Hi. very worrisome <laughs> um, but but we've seen this this self-censorship much more broadly there's all kinds of substantive opinions that people are very cautious about expressing 
either because they're worried about they're going to offend their own colleagues or, or they're worried about they're going to offend uh, donors or alumni or the broader community and politicians. Um, but often they're worried about offending their own students um, and a fear that their students will um, object and complain and the university administrators will uh, cave in to pressure to sanction faculty um, because they've uh, said something in the classroom or, or something in public um, that their own students object to. And, and uh, it results in a uh, a much more limited uh, scope of debate and discussion uh, than what you really would expect to find on a university campus. Yeah, I really, um, when I was reading um, the articles that you've written about the AFA, I was very pleased to see you p- placing a strong emphasis on the bipartisan and cross-political, cross-trans-political tra- uh, um on on the broad alliance that you want to build here because one of the one of the problems that besets this issue like so many other issues is a kind of moral bean counting in which people want to argue about who is most affected by the issue um i mean i notice this with race issues all the time too sure. rather than talking about say policing people want to first of all establish who is worst off? Is it um, black people or brown people or white people? Um, who is worst off, men or women? There's this kind of bean counting approach to things, which I find very extremely annoying. <laughs> and I notice that in free speech d- disputes a lot too, that people are arguing about whether it's conservatives or liberals who are most affected. And therefore, whether or not we should care about the issue, depending on who we think is most affected by it. And that just seems like a distraction to me. I mean, as you stress, it's important to protect everyone's freedom of expression on principle. And if you have robust free speech laws and free speech norms and culture in place, that benefits, that benefits everyone. So I've been I've been very frustrated by that aspect of the debate. Uh, it is very frustrating. You would hope that it benefits everyone. It's it is remarkable the degree to which people are trying to make calculations about um, uh, well, d- does it benefit me more than it will benefit others? Uh, might it benefit somebody that I'm opposed to? And if so, <laughs> uh, should I sacrifice this principle and instead? Um, and there is just a lot of, um, in part because people are working in their own silos, they know their own problems and people who are quite uh, similar to them. And so there is this natural instinct to think, well, this, this, this might be a problem for, for me and my friends, but it's surely not really a problem for, for other people. Um, and, and I think it's essential to try to build this kind of broad-based coalition to emphasize the, that, look, this is not just a problem for, for a handful of people or for one side uh, in academia. This is a broad-based problem that's affecting um, uh, lots of people in academia. And we ought to, despite our other uh, disagreements, uh, be able to unify around the importance of um, being able to have conversations um, and talk about um, sometimes difficult and, and controversial um, uh, things. And, and I'm just extraordinarily grateful for the people who are willing to uh, sign on to the Academic Freedom Alliance because they um, were willing to set aside some of the, those kinds of uh, natural inclinations in order to um, uh, join a group like this that is, that is committed to thinking across the board. And it is going to sometimes be the case that you find yourself 
defending disproportionately at times some particular set of, of uh, actors because certain kinds of disputes or certain kinds of faculty are going to be more the targets at some moments in time than others. Um, but I think o- over the scope of time, uh, everybody's going to have a stake in this. Um, and, and so we have to not focus so much on, well, what do I think about this particular dispute with this particular individual and the particular things they said, um, and focus much more on the broader principles there at stake. Absolutely. I was a little bit irritated to see that the article about the organization in the New York Post describes you as a nonprofit dedicated to fighting against cancel culture efforts to silence faculty targeted by woke outrage. Um, because that makes it sound as though you are basically battling in the culture wars and you are the kind of non-woke side fighting against the woke side. And I think that's really a misrepresentation of your organization and your principles as I understand them, because Certainly, um, there have also been leftist academics, liberal academics, quote-unquote woke academics who have um, fallen afoul of the sensorious atmosphere, current sensorious atmosphere. And as you yourself point out, um, it's particularly tricky to tackle topics to do with um, race or gender or sexuality or trans issues, those kinds of issues that are at the heart of what social justice leftists care about are ironically, have ironically become minefields of potential offense. And so this kind of stifling also also stifles people who are teaching, who have more social justice oriented convictions. So even though I'm absolutely anti I'm I count myself very firmly in the anti-woke camp I think that it's free speech cannot become a woke versus anti-woke issue or a culture war issue it's much more universal and um much more universally applicable and fundamental than that do you agree I I think that's absolutely right and I'm, I'm Part. I'm trying to work on a book project now discussing the history of why it is progressives um, have long had an important stake in free speech debates and, and that progressive causes um, uh, uh, require um, having robust protections of free speech in order to be um, uh, successful. Um, I, I think it's certainly a misrepresentation of our organization. I think ultimately um, uh, misguided to uh, want to uh, frame this as um, a debate between those who are hostile to certain social justice goals and, and those who are not. Um, as you say, there are people across the board, including many of those that would um, agree very much with uh, a great deal of social justice causes um, that uh, nonetheless uh, feel very anxious about their current situation, feel the need for uh, protections for their own ability uh, to speak out. Um, and and we ought to be thinking about how to build alliances across some of these substantive differences um, in order to build up protections for uh, this particular um, right, um, which, like I said, I think uh, there ought to be um, very widespread um, support for it. In general, I try to avoid um, uh, both the terms cancel culture, but also the woke, I find them both um, not only not very helpful because they can um, 
uh, turn people off, but also I, I just find it um, uh, the, the terms themselves are, are amorphous enough that it's often hard to know exactly what people have in mind when they're talking about uh, these things. I do understand um, why at least some uh, would want to uh, latch hold of the kinds of uh, fight we're engaged in and and connect it to uh, these these other kinds of concerns. And I'm sure that there are members of the organization who um, uh, are motivated in part, um, by, by this specific concern. Um, but there are others who are motivated by, by other fights and other worries who are, uh, who are often much more sympathetic, um, uh, to what might get characterized as, as woke causes. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we should welcome, um, uh, building bridges across those kinds of, of divides and, and recognize that uh, no matter how we might feel about the particular substantive issues, um, that's, that's critically important, we'd be able to talk about those issues um, and, and talk about them candidly um, to um, explain ourselves as best we can, to hear what, other, what the disagreements are and what other people think. Um, and if we um, instead are suppressing disagreements, we're suppressing dissents, um, it's, it's going to make it much harder to uh, think through and solve uh, some of these social problems, um, but it's also going to um, make it harder even to build support for the kind of political movements, substantive political movements that we might uh, care about. Um, so it's it's not the way I would want to describe the organization. Um, I understand why people might be inclined to want to uh, describe it this way, but it, it goes back to something I said in the beginning is, unfortunately, we are in a situation where uh, the defense of free speech itself is sometimes seen as a right-wing cause. Um, and uh, uh, that's a strange turn of events since uh, the day before yesterday, it was primarily a left-wing cause in which uh, those on the right were often hostile uh, to robust protections um, uh, for free speech. Um, but, I, but I think we, we need to emphasize the extent to which uh, this is really a cause that uh, people ought to care about um, across the political spectrum. Mm. Absolutely. I very much agree. And um, I mean, there are certain political stances that I find myself amplifying more than others for purely free speech reasons. For example, um, gender critical views of the trans debate are very heavily censored at the moment. And as a result, we have certainly published in ARIO more gender critical stuff than we have um, voices from the from the more kind of trans rights um, side of that debate, even though I personally am more sympathetic to the trans rights side. But I'm absolutely appalled by the silencing and censoring of, of opposing views. And therefore, I want those views to have a platform and a voice. So it actually even puts one sometimes in positions of um, amplifying amplifying the voices that one disagrees with more, because because I I want to just preserve the principle of everybody being able to voice their opinions freely, and censorship is just a um, the urge to censor people seems to be just something very deeply embedded in human nature nobody likes to have views stated that are opposed to the that are in opposition to their views nobody likes to be mocked no one likes to be criticized and therefore as soon as people have the power to affect censorship many of them try to do so and so you have to keep pushing back um, on all sides 
Yeah, I think it is just a universal temptation to uh, try to suppress those that you disagree with um, on on various substantive issues, and uh, I think it's so it is it is pushing back against human nature. I think to try to encourage people um, uh, to actually. Uh, uh, allow other people to speak, um, even when they are going to disagree with you, um, even when they might be persuasive and convince other people uh, to disagree with you. Yeah. Um, and, and that's hard. Um, but I think we're ultimately um, better off for, for allowing those debates to take place, um, uh, both, both in the sense that um, it's important for us to hear the criticisms of our own positions. Um, uh, sometimes that will lead us to uh, uh, maybe abandon our positions entirely, maybe modify them to some degree in order to uh, respond and take account of uh, very sound criticisms. It may lead us to have to think through how do we uh, more successfully respond to these criticisms so more people will be persuaded um, by uh, the arguments that we want to make. And unless we can hear uh, what the criticisms are, it's very hard um, to figure out how then do you uh, position yourself to be as persuasive as possible um, to the audiences uh, you, you want to reach. Um, I am very grateful for, for platforms like uh, Aereo that are available for um, people who present a range of arguments. And as you say, sometimes you find yourself um, amplifying, paying attention to, listening to, talking with people that um, uh, you, you might actually quite disagree with um, but uh, you find them so, yourself drawn to them as a consequence of these uh, free speech debates in, in particular. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's critical, I think, that we still be able to provide uh, spaces in our uh, civic life uh, where, it's, where it's possible to hear uh, dissenting voices um, and, uh, and to see what the other side um, is thinking. Um, there's just a... a yeah, it's the nature of our current um, uh, information infrastructure that that we uh, increasingly exist in silos. Uh, we're losing um, a lot of the kind of broad-based media that once brought um, very divergent voices together um, into single outlets. There's increasing demand um, that there be a party line, uh, and you you reduce uh, the accessibility of your platform to only those who agree with you. Uh, down down the line of a whole range of policy issues, um, and and ultimately, I think that's not very helpful. Um, it's not very helpful to uh, thinking seriously about ideas. Um, certainly not very helpful in the university environment where we're supposed to be taking ideas very seriously and and listening to criticisms and trying to think through um, the the. Uh, weight of those uh, criticisms, but it's also not very helpful to a democracy and how it ought to operate. Um, uh, we need to be able to hear um, uh, our fellow citizens who have disagreements with us um, and, and again, and sort of be willing to engage them. Um, and we may not be persuaded by them at the end of the day, um, but, but it's not particularly useful to um, just ignore them or try to marginalize them or suppress them, um, uh, certainly to the extent that they reflect uh, relatively mainstream uh, views and positions and arguments um, uh, that uh, has to have to be engaged with um, if you uh, want a, a viable, uh, peaceful, pluralistic uh, and free society. There's also, it seems to me, I, I don't know how you feel about this, a misperception about how how sponge-like students are and how kind of susceptible people are to just absorbing whatever ideas they hear or read about. 
I mean, a lot of the debates, for example, are about how harmful it is to express views that supposedly delegitimize certain identity groups or um, which express hate um, towards certain groups of people. And I don't endorse hate, but at university, I read Nazi propaganda, so from the actual Nazi era. I read eugenic stuff. I taught a course for many years on representing homosexuality, and we read all kinds of extraordinarily weird and wonderful homophobic literature. And no one was harmed by that. It's It was the beginning and springboard of discussion. And I can't see why that isn't also the case with modern views, why modern views can't also be the springboard of discussion rather than assuming that when you hear a view, you are somehow doomed to be damaged by it. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a common joke among faculty that you can't even get the student to read the uh, syllabus or, or do the reading. So, so how is it that we're supposed to be uh, <laughs> persuading them all to uh, these, these horrible views? Um, and, and the more systematic social science evidence on this, and there's not a tremendous amount, but, the, but there are some very good studies um, on this and really just find no evidence at all that faculty are um, uh, significantly uh, altering uh, students' uh, political opinions or uh, their broader views. It's, it's, students are, are not sponges in that sense. Uh, they don't just absorb whatever, uh, uh, certainly don't absorb uncritically uh, whatever it is uh, professors tell them um, or what they experience on a college campus uh, more, more generally. Um, we ought to give people more credit than that and, and recognize that they're uh, capable of hearing ideas, are capable of assessing those ideas, um, and and reaching their own conclusions. Um, and as a consequence, you want to expose them to a range um, of ideas and and um, help them think through what their own um, understandings are. It's it's at the very heart of the liberal commitment um, uh, that uh, individuals uh, should be able to exercise judgment and make free choices and and as a consequence um, be able to in this particular context um, hear hear a range of, of views and ideas and and be able to exercise some autonomy in making those decisions and so the very people who are complaining that students are, are being manipulated on college campuses by faculty are themselves extraordinarily interested in manipulating students by trying to uh, suppress um, ideas that the student might otherwise get exposed to. Um, and so there's just this um, uh, both fear that other people are uh, manipulating everyone um, through through their expression and a rush to be able to try to grab hold of the tools um, of, of manipulation, um, all of which is, is just uh, very, very discouraging um, about uh, how how we think of the public sphere, how we think of the educational process, um, and what it is we're, we're hoping to uh, accomplish. Um, I, I'm with you in, in thinking back on my own sort of experience as an undergraduate, for example, and um, part of what I loved about it was being exposed to all kinds of uh, ideas that I had not uh, seen previously. Um, often the things that were most fascinating and interesting uh, were the uh, in some ways, the the craziest of the ideas um, that otherwise you wouldn't encounter, um, and uh, yeah, that's part of the joy of learning is to be able to 
see and experience new things, to encounter new ideas, to to wrestle with those new ideas. Um, uh, but but as you say, people don't just sort of encounter those ideas and then suddenly are swept away by them. Um, uh, students are perfectly capable of, of reading a wide range of, of views um, and, and thinking about them critically and coming to their own conclusions. Um, uh, and, and as a consequence, I don't think we should fear so much um, exposing students or anyone else um, to, um, to a wide range of, of ideas, including um, ideas we might find um, quite extreme or are are troubling um, in, in various ways. Um, as you know, people are just not so easily won over um, by uh, by those kinds of ideas, and and we shouldn't. Um, uh, we should have a little more confidence, I think, in the strength of our own ideas and our own arguments um, and that, that we aren't so afraid that people are going to uh, suddenly throw over um, uh, the kinds of values and principles and commitments that you think are important um, if, just, if they're just exposed to something else that's more critical of it. Um, presumably, um, people hold the values and commitments that uh, they hold precisely because they think they are true or valuable or important. Um, and uh, the goal ought to be uh, trying to show others uh, why that's true um, and, and help persuade them um, that they ought to hold those same values and principles. Uh, they ought to cherish them um, and try to extend them over time. Um, mm. And uh, as an educator, that's what, you, in part, what you're trying to do is expose people to ideas and get them to think critically about them. Um, and and ho- hope to help them uh, think in more sophisticated ways um, about uh, the ideas that they value and cherish. Yeah. I mean, the kind of idea anyway that students will just accept what their professors say is gospel seems so unrealistic to me. I mean, when I was a student, I thought many of my professors were completely bonkers. And when I was a professor, many of my students thought I was completely bonkers. And they certainly weren't afraid to say so in their student evaluations, <laughs> which, of course, were taken into account for my third year and 10-year reviews and things. Um, so this, this exaggerated feeling that the uh, this exaggerated representation of the professors having some kind of mind control over students I feel well. When I was a professor, I would have welcomed a little bit of a little bit more mind control. To be frank, <laughs> uh, I definitely didn't have it. That's. It seems very. It seems that this is a. There is just a misunderstanding of of how human nature works and how stubborn people are in defense of what they themselves believe. Yeah, this this image of what happens on college campus that you uh, encounter in some of these uh, political debates or um, the public press that's that is focused on some of these free speech issues, for example, um, uh, just often doesn't seem very familiar uh, for anyone who actually is a, is on a college campus and and experiences uh, what those campuses are like, uh, what classrooms are like, uh, what the relationship between faculty and students are like. Um, uh, I think a lot of people um, off of college campuses um, make make just very wrong assumptions about um, uh, the kinds of influence the faculty have over students, um, uh, what the day-to-day life on a college campus uh, looks like. 
Um, and to be fair, among the things that I think um, uh, can often be very misleading in these kinds of public impressions about college campuses, it's also easy to imagine um, the campuses are just overrun with uh, this kind of censorious uh, conduct um, that uh, uh when we had sort of this wave of, of reporting about episodes of uh, outside speakers being shouted down on American college campuses, for example, um, it'd be easy to draw the conclusion from that kind of reporting that this is just happening every day, um, that no one's capable of having a speech on a college campus without uh, students rioting. Um, and of course, that's not true either, right? It's it's also the case that that on, in, in a, on a day-to-day uh, uh, way on college campuses that it's perfectly possible to have um, uh, enlightening classroom conversations. It's possible to bring in controversial outside speakers and for things to go well. Um, in, but nonetheless, there is sort of, but at the same time, we should recognize that um, th- there is this undercurrent of, of trouble um, that's occurring in college campuses. And so we shouldn't exaggerate it, um, but we also shouldn't minimize it. Um, and so there, there's just a lot of uh, public impressions of university life um, that I think is, is pretty disconnected from, from the reality. Um, and sometimes people want to use uh, that kind of point um, in order to say, well, then there's really no problems on university campuses. Um, and I think that'd be a mistake um, uh, too. Um, we should we should be realistic about the problems, um, both in the sense of recognizing them, um, but also in the sense of uh, not not overstating them. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if we overstate them, that then unfortunately we encourage more self censorship and fear, because if people feel that they can't possibly broach a controversial topic without the students being up in arms, absolutely, then they're not going to broach controversial topics. So I think you're right, and it would probably be helpful to highlight some cases in which those those occasions have gone well and people have been successful um, in order to show that just that to model the fact that it's possible. Yeah, and I think it's important to convey to both students and faculty um, that the voices calling for censorship, the voices calling for suppression, um, of ideas and of speech are often, even now, the, the distinct minority on college campuses, um, that there's uh, often very loud activists who would like to be able to control the speech environment um, on college campuses, who would like to uh, uh, shrink uh, the intellectual space um, on college campuses. Um, and, and they speak for a contingent. Um, uh, I worry that it's a growing contingent um, on college campuses. Um, uh, but it is still, I think, a distinct minority on college campuses. I think the most students and most faculty um, would prefer a more wide-ranging um, uh, capacity to debate ideas on college campuses and prefer uh, greater freedom of thought and greater freedom of speech um, on college campuses. Um, but And one thing that sort of allows those loud voices to succeed um, in shutting down speech is um, that people are not very confident um, that anyone agrees with them. Um, and so uh, it's easy to become convinced that you're the only person on your campus who actually would value free speech um, because all you hear um, are the people who don't. Um, and one reason why we want to form an organization like the Academic Freedom Alliance is precisely 
um, to organize the faculty who continue to believe in the importance of free speech and academic freedom um, and that they're willing to speak up about it and they're willing to tell others that, in fact, there are people um, on college campuses who care about this. Um, and you're not alone um, if you find yourself being uh, attacked for holding a, a view like this. Um, it's, it's, it's unfortunately necessary for those of us, I think, who, who believe in freedom of speech um, to get loud as well. Um, because the, the loud voices for quite some time have been uh, the voices calling for uh, suppression of thought. Um, and and it, that, that influence of those voices will only grow um, if they aren't countered. Um, so I, I think it's important to push back. Um, and uh, But in pushing back, um, uh, whether in these kind of organized ways or even just in a day-to-day -day way of actually just assigning controversial things in your class, having a difficult conversation in your classroom, having a difficult conversation um, on the public square um, on a university campus, um, uh, pushing back is important and recognizing that you're not alone and thinking that it's important to have these conversations um, is, is important to, to shore up uh, people's willingness um, to, to engage in, in in, uh, these conversations and not to engage in the kind of self-censorship um, that winds up shrinking the scope of debate, shrinking the range of ideas that we can talk about. Could you give me some concrete examples of cases in which you think that the um, person involved would have really benefited from uh, an organization, the presence of an organization like yours? Uh, well, sure. So, um, uh, so I could mention a case that we're involved in uh, right now, um, for example, and which uh, uh, hopefully they will benefit, although it's still an ongoing uh, case, but one that we are um, involved in publicly. Um, uh, so this involves a professor at the University of San Diego uh, Law School um, by the name of Tom Smith. Um, he maintained, he's a conservative a uh, faculty member, he maintains a uh, blog in which he uh, posts on uh, legal and political issues. Um, he uh, posted a uh, blog post in which um, he uh, uh, had a, a quote from a Wall Street Journal article about um, the source of the uh, COVID-19 uh, virus in China and um, criticizing the Chinese government for how they handled um, the initial outbreak and um, raising questions about whether or not um, uh, Chinese uh, labs were involved. Um, the professor then includes a brief uh, comment after the quote from this uh, news article um, uh, stating that it seems obvious that the Chinese government behaved badly and, and um, uh, we shouldn't believe the propaganda that tells us otherwise. And a... Um, uh, and in particular, I use this phrase that um, uh, we shouldn't believe the uh, Chinese cockswaddle about um, this uh, initial outbreak of the uh, pandemic. Um, a group of uh, students objected to this, uh, reported him to the dean of his law school, um, said this was uh, anti-Asian uh, bias um, and that uh, he was uh, engaged in uh, ethnically offensive um, speech. Um, the dean um, uh, denounced the um, um, uh, blog post and, and said he would look into it. Um, and the university is continuing to investigate. And this has been uh, several weeks now um, in which the university is uh, not being clear that uh, this is um, uh, protected speech. Given uh, University of San Diego Law School is a, a private university, 
Um, uh, but its own governing documents um, are quite clear um, that this kind of speech by faculty um, is uh, protected. Um, and as a consequence, uh, the university really has nothing to investigate um, under these circumstances. That would be true at most American universities with speech of this uh, sort. Um, and yet the university continues to hold out the possibility that they will fire this um, professor um, as a consequence of a single blog post. Um, uh so he's been under this shadow of this threat for um, several weeks now. We have uh, got involved in the case and have publicly criticized the law school and demanded um, that the law school cease uh, any um, investigation of this and admit that um, his speech was protected. Um, but the law school hasn't done it yet. Um, I think he would be in a worse situation if, if organizations like ours um, were not available and speaking out um, on his behalf. Um, certainly, he'd be in a worse situation relative to his ability to um, internally defend himself um, uh, against the administration, against potential charges that may eventually uh, be formalized. Um, and And I think, likewise, I hope that the kind of public attention that we've helped draw to the case um, will will influence the university. Um, but, you know, we have not yet resolved the case. And um, uh, so so we'll see um, whether or not uh, at the end of the day um, it, it resolves in his favor. There are lots of cases, in, including s- several that I um, wrote about, you know, on my own uh, terms before uh, this organization was formed in which faculty um, have gotten in trouble for things similar to this kind of case where faculty have posted something in a blog post or they said something on social media um, that somebody has found um, objectionable. Um, uh, Sometimes the objections come from students, as it did in this case at the University of San Diego. Um, But sometimes the objections come from uh, politicians or activists um, off campus. Um, uh, many of these cases, many of those kind of cases involving these kind of social media comments involve uh, faculty who are on the political left, um, unlike the case at San Diego that involves faculty member on the political right. Um, but all those kinds of uh, postings, no matter how inflammatory um, they are, and some of them are quite inflammatory, um, are forms of protected speech. Um, they're in many cases, they're guaranteed under constitutional protections of the federal constitution in the United States. Um, in almost all cases, they're protected by um, uh, contractual um, commitments universities um, have made to their faculty about um, the nature of their um, speech in this kind of private um, capacity. Um, and yet universities frequently announce that they're going to investigate the faculty. They um, leave faculty dangling uh, for weeks or months um, with uncertainty about what's going to happen to their jobs. Um, sometimes universities have actually followed through with that and, and fired faculty uh, for that kind of speech. Um, uh, and other times they, they eventually wind up backing off. Um, th- those kinds of controversies um, uh, need to be resolved much more quickly. Um, they need to be resolved in favor of the faculty member. Universities um, need uh, to stop um, issuing these statements that are so obviously contrary to their own academic freedom uh, commitments. Um, and having a group of faculty sort of speaking out about that um, and and really um, pushing back on university administrators um, who are craven enough uh, to give in to these kinds of complaints um, in order to threaten faculty for their um, legally protected speech. 
um, I think is is really going to be essential as as we try to move forward. And hopefully we can get to a point where university administrators are much more willing to simply tell people who complain in these circumstances, um, sorry, that's protected speech and there's nothing we can do about it. And if you have disagreements with the speech, uh, you're welcome to uh, voice those disagreements um, uh, yourself. Um, yeah. So if you don't like somebody's tweet, uh, you can uh, tweet back um, uh, your own views, but uh, stop calling for them to be fired. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Keith, is there anything that you have, any um, topic that you've wanted to raise that I haven't given you a chance to talk about? Um, so one thing that's maybe worth mentioning a little bit is um, is this distinction between academic freedom and, and freedom of speech, which I think is not always um, clear mm-hmm. to um, audiences outside of academia uh, in particular. Uh, in the American context, um, uh, principles of academic freedom really just started getting advocated at the very beginning of the 20th century, um, primarily by um, an organization which continues to exist um, and continues to uh, try to protect academic freedom, the American Association of University Professors. Um, and it's through that organization's advocacy in the early 20th century that a lot of universities in the United States wound up um, embracing these principles and, and building them into their employment contracts and the like. Um, and those principles um, in, are, are grounded in sort of three separate sort of buckets of protections of faculty speech. Um, on uh, First, that faculty have a, a right to um, a published scholarship um, uh, consistent with disciplinary norms without um, fear of censures or sanction by uh, university officials, um, that they have a right to uh, teach their courses um, without outside interference. Um, uh, again, as long as they're complying with the professional norms of their uh, disciplines. And uh, they have a right to speak out in public about matters of public concern uh, without fear of sanction uh, from, from university officials. Those first two, um, uh, the, the right to publish and, and engage in scholarship and the right to teach, are, are different than the kinds of protections that are uh, extended to American citizens generally through the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, for example. They're, they're grounded in a set of professional expectations about um, how people um, ought to be conducting themselves. Um, so faculty um, are expected to um, teach their subject matter. They're expected um, uh, not to introduce um, excessively controversial material into uh, their classes, certainly not controversial material unrelated to the subject matter of their classes. Um, and so there, there are some important limitations on what faculty speech ought to look like and depending on the context in which it's being made and what it is faculty um, are doing. So we shouldn't think that campuses are simply uh, free speech free-for-alls. Um, uh, they're, they're very complicated um, uh, spaces for speech. We expect very different kind of behavior, very different kinds of discussions occurring uh, in a dorm room as opposed to a seminar room, as opposed to uh, the public quad. Um, and, and I think ultimately all those spaces are valuable. Um, they all serve important functions on university campuses. University campuses would be much less interesting places um, if it wasn't possible to engage in uh, the uh, array of types of speech that we engage in um, on college campuses. Um, and so it's, it's important to, to protect them all. Um, but, but it's also important to recognize that there are some important differences um, and we shouldn't... Um, 
uh, flatten out all the kinds of speech that occurs on college campuses. And I think sometimes, especially in public discussions, there there is a tendency to think it's all the same or, or, or uh, talk about it as if it's all the same, whether what we're talking about is um, – uh, some outside speaker who's invited to, by some student group um, to give a public talk on campus as opposed to um, a faculty member in the classroom, for example, conducting classes on their area of expertise. Mm, yeah, I've noticed that also with social media. Um, there is, it's very unclear to people where public and private bound, uh, where um, the public person ends and the private person begins. Yeah, well, it's hard in that regard. It's, um, uh, it's um, sometimes I have to remind, I think, uh, our grad students, uh, for example, who are just beginning their careers and and um, and grew up in this kind of social media environment. But but sometimes they need reminders that there's no sharp division between your private and your public uh, personas in this regard or your professional personas that um uh, all the speech that you engage in um, is going to be available and accessible and they will affect how people will evaluate you um, and, and think about you. Um, and so you, you ought to recognize that fact that, that you're engaged in a, a conversation in which uh, the boundaries between different roles that you play in, in your life um, are ultimately porous. Um, and, and that. And that's different than the way it used to be. Um, uh, it was always the case that these boundaries were, were somewhat porous, but but they weren't nearly as so visible. And so it used to be that when faculty spoke about public concerns in public, uh, that meant they wrote a letter to the editor of their local newspaper. Uh, they spoke up in some local uh, town meeting, um, uh, not that they uh, posted something on Twitter uh, for millions of people to see all across the globe. Um, and so... Um, uh, there's some adjustment that has to take place to uh, uh, take into account the fact that we are living in a somewhat different technological environment um, that um, uh, leads to um, our speech being received differently um, than it previously was. And uh, I think we're still going through an adjustment process of sort of figuring out um, what that means and, and how best to um, grapple with it. Yeah, I think it would be a great shame, though, if... Twitter and Facebook were just extensions of people's public personae, if it was all about just maintaining your brand and not saying anything that might damage your professional reputation. Um, I mean, of course, I understand that um, certain things might damage your reputation. If you were to tweet out that you were having an affair with a 14-year-old or something, that's obviously going to damage your reputation. But this, this sort of the idea that we should be presenting a um, a clean professional kind of corporate front at all times, I find that I think that would make life extremely boring. I think that's right, and and you can imagine one equilibrium that we will um, wind up settling on is is exactly that one where everybody is very carefully managing their brand um, across all platforms at all times. Um, that it is this sort of very bland uh, corporate persona. Uh, precisely because uh, you're worried about offending people and um, worried about saying something that might uh, somehow be damaging. I'm, I'm hopeful that instead the equilibrium we wind up settling on as a society 
um, is to just accept the fact um, that people are complicated, um, that they will have a range of opinions and views to learn that we will learn to be a little more tolerant of the fact that people will uh, differ from us um, and disagree with us, that we might admire people um, uh, on some dimensions, but uh, not admire them so much on other dimensions. Um, And but but we aren't there yet, um, and and I hope I hope that we do find our way there. And it's and part of what I think we need to be doing in trying to promote the value of free speech is in is in part promote that kind of tolerance for dissent and disagreement. Um, uh, but um, but we're certainly in an environment where people, instead of tolerating dissent and disagreement, want to uh, rush out to punish it. Um, and I think that will make us all uh, worse off. Um, and it certainly runs the risk of making uh, social media um, uh, much less interesting and, and really probably make our lives in general much less interesting than mm. they have. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, Keith, I will put all the links into the show notes. But what specifically can people do to help? Right. So, um, uh, so the Academic Freedom Alliance does have a, a website that's up that tells about the organization. It's a place that accepts donations. Uh, we um, are uh, managing the growth of of new uh, members, and but we're we're. Uh, certainly taking inquiries about um, people who might want to join the organization uh, or simply join a mailing list to hear more um, about um, uh, the organization. Um, so I hope people uh, check out um, uh, academicfreedom.org, um, which is the, the website for the, for the alliance, and, and learn more information about what we're up to um, and the kinds of principles we're trying to advance. Great. Thank you so much, Keith. Thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.